I'm Erica Lynn, and we all know the ocean is the most demanding environment on Earth, consistently testing the reliability and durability of our equipment. When you spend as much time fishing as I do, you know that reliable gear is essential for staying on the water. This is why I went with Abyss Battery to power my trolling motor, electronics, and outboard. The guys at Abyss Battery are rattling the saltwater industry by manufacturing performance marine batteries specifically designed for sonar, outboards, trolling motors, and electronic fishing reels. They're also Bluetooth compatible, so I found Checking battery statuses right on your phone while you're out on the water is a huge game changer. To learn more about why Abyss batteries are used by the pros and factory installed by Premier Boat Builders, visit AbyssBattery.com. This segment is brought to you by Jigmaster Jigs. When in doubt, get the jig out. Go to Jigmasters.com and use promo code PNF20 and save 20% off your next jig order today. Welcome to the Pat on Fan Podcast, the Bass Fishing for Noobs segment, where we try to improve our skills as an angler by learning new techniques or improving the ones we already know. I'm your host, Ryan Milford. Welcome back to the Paddle and Finn podcast, the Bass Fishing for Noobs segment. I'm Ryan, and we got Sean here today. Hey, guys. And today we wanted to do a little episode about, you know, proper handling of fish for catch and release to help ensure that they survive after you release them. So today we got Mr. Jason Broach on here. Welcome to the show. Hey, how's it going? Um, to start it off, why don't you, you know, tell who you are, what you do, and all that good stuff. All right. Um, Jason Broach from Bluffton, South Carolina. I work the work with the South Carolina Department of Natural Resources. Um, marine scientist, expertise in aquaculture, pretty much fish farming, but as it relates to research and figuring out ways to do it better. Kayak fishing since 2007. That's pretty much me in a nutshell. Born in South Carolina, school in Alabama, school in Florida, fishing all across something. Did you always know you wanted to do something fishing related as a job? I mean, like every little country boy, I had that dream, but um, in high school, I was determined I was going to be a veterinarian and finished college and I was not too sure about that and found a couple of research positions working with fish, aquaculture, and went that route. Then I, I knew I was going to do something with fish after that. But, yeah. It was about 2007 I figured it out. Cool, man. All right. So one thing that inspired this interview, talking about the proper handling of fish, fish and release or catch and release. I, I've wanted to do an episode like this for a little while, but what really pushed it was I saw a picture posted on Facebook of somebody having fish grips on a fish and they had it like 
kind of twisted to where the handle was underneath the fish and the part that clamps down was going all the way through uh, the fish, all the way around their lip bone. I, I guess that's a bone. I'm not real sure on the yeah. uh, biology of a fish, but um, but yeah, I, I know that you're not. That's not supposed to go all the way through. So what what's your take on using fish grips in general? It. It's kind of dictated on the, the fish and I guess their mouth and how well they should be able to handle it. Like bass, pretty much never would use a fish grip. I might use something like a donkey leash, if, if but I would never hold a fish with the actual fish grips or any type of lifting device like that. Um, leave it in the water on their fish grips. Never hold it like that at any angle out of the water. Um, if it's you know, something like a bowfin, I might use fish grips. If it's saltwater fish, like a sea trout, I might use fish grips. But if it's something I can lip, I'll be using fish grips. Or I won't be using fish grips. Um, and if generally, if I'm something I'm not going after, I'm not even taking it out of the water. But yeah, largemouth bass, smallmouth bass, spotted bass. I mean, theoretically, you never really have to use fish grips once you. If you have enough experience holding them, catching them, been doing it since you were little, you know you don't need them. So what about if you want to weigh them? Like, uh, you know, some people use fish grips to uh, connect to their scale so they can weigh them. So it, it, you still shouldn't use them on, them on them for that, or is there a better way to do that? The better way would be to have some type of cradle, something you could rest the fish long long ways in um, and weigh it from that angle um, when you start holding the fish like vertically like that the bigger it's, bigger it gets the more impact it's going to have on the fish um, I mean it's not necessarily going to kill the fish but it's going to cause stress on that fish even if you release it it might swim away happy but there's damage to the organs inside of it damage to the jaw potentially um, and it just potentially gets worse as the fish gets bigger. Small fish weighing them less than five pounds, sure, holding them vertically for getting them weighed on the scale, that's fine. But as they get bigger, 10 pounds or more, it, it'd be best to really support that fish a long ways somehow. I. I always wondered too. Most of the the scales I have just have the hook on the bottom, and I've seen people just hook it kind of behind the gill plate. I imagine that's really bad, right? Yeah, I, that and even poking it through just the the flesh below the jaw. I mean, never make a hole if you don't have to, but don't don't get near the gills, especially. That's the primary organ that controls their whole life. Um, best way to do it would be those type of vice or fish grip like devices to where you're not puncturing through there and doing it that way okay Any type of hook device and it's not necessarily going to kill the fish but it's not going to make it happy and <laughs> it's something that fish might stress after you release it for a couple days or weeks or months depending on how you handle it I figured the gills were important, but I mean, also the mouth is obviously important because if it can't eat, it's not going to do too well, right? So, 
and as you know a bass you know primarily inhaling full food when you start putting holes in there and it changing the water pressure around it's not going to feed as efficiently so that makes sense yeah the way it sucks it in i imagine that does make a big difference if you have a hole in your cheek yeah try to suck and nothing nothing's moving towards your mouth and <laughs> they just keep swimming around trying to get it so a while back i heard an interview on another podcast um from another i believe he was like a marine biologist or something along those lines something smarter than i am and uh it was him and his wife actually and they both did the same thing and they were talking about you know taking the fish out of the water and how like the the air can hurt the fish i I believe they were talking mostly about trout but they said with pretty much any species you know just try to limit it to like 10 seconds of out of the water time and i I know trout is a lot more of a, I guess, say vulnerable type fish than a bass. But how how would you relate that to to a bass? Because I know, you know, when we're doing kayak tournaments, we're put we're taking the fish out of the water, we're putting it on the board, getting it set up, taking our picture. It takes a lot more than ten seconds to do that, unless you're just a complete pro at it, I guess. And the fish is very cooperative, so. That, that that made me curious from that aspect like what well, how, how how would you say that relates to bass i mean what are the, so growing up i did a lot of fishing and everything but when i finally went to started my masters at auburn i learned a very important rule about fish and that was we were working with crappy at the time uh, doing some hormone induced spawning and my advisor the professor um, he was watching two of the first students that picked up a crappie out of the water. And he's watching them, you know, handle this fish. 20 seconds goes on, 30 seconds goes on. Then he says something that the whole class just was like, whoa. But he just said, don't forget, fish live in water. And that was just like, yeah, that, that's true. And when it comes to, like, kayak fishing, angling, the whole CPR, I mean, that's something you have to remember. If that fish starts losing water starts getting desiccated even on the skin it starts affecting the slime coat and that's its barrier against you know all those uh different pathogens that are out there bacteria infections and things like that but also anytime the gills start crying out they're not going to function like a um as long as the gills are wet they can potentially transfer oxygen but longer that fish is out of the water and more starts start more stuff starts drying out that I mean, you just start opening up areas, the potential to mess up proper gear, gill function, mess up the slime coat of the fish. So in terms of an actual time that it would take to really have an effect on fish, you know, that's something they probably do know more about with trout because it's a highly aquacultured fish and, uh, you know, it's pretty sensitive, not as hardy as a bass. Um I've seen bass head over the water two minutes, and they seem to do swim off nice and fast. But I've also seen them hot summertime conditions head over the water for 20 seconds after a long fight, and you know they just don't make it. But definitely keeping the fish wet, keeping the fish in the water as long as possible when you are in a CPR tournament, that's going to help <clears throat> prevent any type of you know 
injury to that fish down the road. So, you know, they were saying in the in the interview I heard, they were saying like it wasn't like bring it up for ten seconds and then put it back in the water and then bring it back out ten seconds. It was ten seconds total. So, w- would you agree with that or? I, I I wonder because you, you say as long as you keep the gills wet and all that stuff. Yeah, as long as you, you're keeping that that moisture on it, the, keeping it wet. Um, for bass, I don't think it's going to be as big of a problem. Part of that is the scales, type of scales, and just the sensitivity of the fish. Um, bigger scales on the fish, like a bass, they tend to handle it better. Smaller scaled species, like like freshwater trout and even saltwater sea trout um, they don't do well because they, it can just dry out so fast and as it starts drying out they actually scales can start peeling off worse than they can on a, a bigger scaled fish like bass um how about netting them like if i know some people when they catch the fish they'll put the net in the water you know just so it's still in the water but in the net is that okay uh, or does that it depends on the net or yeah, I mean, that, that's definitely better than having the fish out of the water, for sure. If we just remember that, that concept, fish live in water. Um, types of nets out there, rubber or rubberized nets are better, plastic mesh type nets, something that's not going to kind of slough off that slime coat of theirs. Um, and that's something if you, if you were to ever like spot a sea trout, for example, I mean, you can see that, the effects of different types of nets quick on those fish um and that i'm all about rubberized nets now that's all I, all i use now for all species of fish but bass they can take a nylon net fairly well not mess up his flying coat but it all in all to take the stress off the fish a rubberized net is better and keeping that slime coat intact on the fish I, I was going to ask about that too, because, uh, whenever I caught my personal best, you know, I just had a little cheap, you know, the, I guess nylon, you know, it was like the rope string type stuff. Um, and, uh, whenever I pulled it out, it had like a couple little like cut marks on the tail. I'm not sure if it already had that or if it caused it by the net, but I, I was like, man, I hope I didn't do that with that net. Like when it was trying to like get away while it was swimming in the net, you know. It, the the nylon net nylon nets do tend to do that more than a rubberized net. Kind of you'll start seeing the fins get split like that with the nylon nets. Um, and it, it's something on the fish that will heal, but it it is a stress factor for them. Yeah. And I was gonna say I I'm all about you know uh, with with bass I'm all you know, catch and release. I've never kept a bass. And so I, you know, I have very few bass that want to bite my lure anyways. So, <laughs> you know, I, I, the ones that do, I want to keep them alive. So hopefully they'll bite it again someday. I, I think a rubber net's better for like when I use uh, any treble hook baits too, than a nylon net, just because it, uh, man, I've had times with a uh, nylon net where the treble just gets all wrapped in there and it's impossible to get out. So just from a pure tackle standpoint, I think rubber nets are nicer for that too. But but definitely I've heard they're better for the fish too. So it's a double bonus. Yeah, easier to clean, 
don't hold a smell as bad. Yeah, there's a couple of different benefits for them. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, which is the one I like, and Keto. Get started today and get after your goals. Discover a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, like breakfast, midday bites, and more. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are ready to heat and eat so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash waypointpod50 and use the code waypointpod50 to get 50% off. That's waypointpod50 at factormeals.com slash waypointpod50 to get 50% off. Um, I know uh, when we're talking about holding fish too, um, when people take their, their trophy shot, you know, they always, I've heard that you should support the belly, you know, when you're uh, never hold a fish just by the jaw horizontally, you know, but you're saying even vertically is tough on the jaw, but especially or horizontally, if you're going to hold them that way, make sure you support their, the belly with your other hand or somehow support them. Is that correct? Yeah, and the bigger the fish, the more important that that becomes. Um, and it's there's you know a lot of emphasis on the jaw, but also just in internal organs of the fish. Also, I mean it's it's spending its life in water, so it's got the you know physics in play where you got the buoyancy for, force of water taking pressure off its inside. As soon as you bring it out into the air, gravity just does what it does and the bigger the fish, the more pressure it gets on organs moving around, hitting certain things that aren't normally moved around in inside of them. So it's a jaw thing, internal organs. Um, and as fish get bigger, it, it becomes more important to hold that fish horizontally, support its belly, make it horizontal as possible. I figure that, you know, in the in the big bass boat tournaments when they're, you know, their boats, their fish aren't supposed to touch the floor, you know, they get a penalty if they're, they don't cleanly handle the fish, like, they wouldn't just boat fish or boat flip a fish or, you know, so I, I know even, even that potentially, you know, hurt, hurts the slime coat and stuff. And I'm sure smacking around on the deck of a boat, even a kayak is not going to be great for them. Yeah, it's one of those things where, I mean, get get a hold of that fish either by lifting it or in the net and just leaving the water until you need to, you have everything ready to do what you need to do. I mean, touch the skin as little as possible. And one thing I've stopped kind of doing is touching the, the tail region, the caudal peduncle region. Because um, a lot of people reviving fish, they usually grab a hold of that and kind of, you know, shake it back and forth. Um but the tail is also an important part of their life. If you get an infection back there and it starts eroding the caudal fin or the tail fin, then it's not going to swim as well, and that can hurt them down the road. So I try not to touch the tail at all. Um, you know, I lip it, throw it on the board, and take my picture, relip it, support its belly, put him back in the water, and let him go. Well, let's talk about what you just said. Uh, for a minute, the whole re uh, reviving fish process. You know, I've, I've 
seen people do it and they kind of I've, I have seen them grab the tail. I've seen them hold them by the mouth and just kind of work them back and forth. Now, now I've I've heard you know you want to do it um, like where they're facing against the current. It, is that true? And if so, why? Like what 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 exactly does that do to help that fish? Yeah. So the main thing to remember after you've caught that fish, I mean it's it's used up a lot of oxygen, produced a lot of CO two. So you put that fish in the water, back in the water to release it. It's important to like, you know, get it, get it as much, as much oxygen to that fish as possible. So getting it against the current, allowing water to flow over the gills, helps bring oxygen, oxygenated water back to the fish and get rid of the CO2. So, you know, bass, it's, it's kind of important. Even a bigger fish though, something like a sailfish, you're fishing offshore. I mean, there's... I mean, boats will hold those fish by the bills and, you know, go you know, a quarter of a mile of that fish to help revive it just to get oxygen back throughout the whole body of the fish. Um, so that that's the best way to do it, kind of hold it by the, the lip or whatever, the, you know, the front part of the fish and just kind of pull it into the current or get, get water flowing over the gills with oxygen, oxygen to the fish. That makes sense. I think it, yeah, I mean, I've had fish before that, you know, after a long fight and you take them out and measure when you put them back in, you know, it, it's amazing how quickly that can wake them up. You know, they'll be just kind of laying there and then you do that a few times and it totally like revives them. I guess that oxygen replaces the CO2 quick and they're just go right back to being alive or like bright and awake, you know. Yeah, I mean, it, it's no different than us holding our breath for a certain amount of time as trying to do it as long as possible and then just when we get that oxygen back it's, it's the same thing for fish so how effective is that for getting oxygen back in their system compared to like just letting them go and letting them swim off on their own i mean it it, it depends on the condition of the the fish um uh I mean, the DNR here has done study, have done studies with red red drum, and just catching fish, big, you know, thirty to fifty pound broodfish, and just letting them go back into the water. And they've actually had different um, uh, tracking devices on them, and they'll follow the fish. They'll let it go, and it'll just sink straight to the bottom. And it's like, hmm. oh man, this fish is going to die. But within about one to two minutes, the fish ups right and starts kind of swimming up and down in the water column and eventually gets on track and swims away. Um, so eventually, like a hardy, hardy species like a bass, you could just let it go, and more than likely it's going to come back if it wasn't handled for too long and other stressful events during the whole capture. Um, but if you know it's hot summertime conditions, that you know it took a while to get that fish in, it, it's best to revive it. Um, it, it. It can help reduce the impacts of you know losing that oxygen during the fight i know i've definitely had trout before where even just getting them out of the water enough to get the hook out and put them back in i i think they're like just stressed enough that they they don't even swim away they just kind of sit there and they're easy i mean i could see him you know just his tail was moving in the current but he was just like i don't know what it just like in shock or something because i could have reached right back down and picked him up again um, but I, I guess they're a little more, like you said, a fragile species. Yeah. And like 
most pretty much the only species that can't pump water across across its gills effectively would be sharks. So if you watch the uh, gills of you know bass and other freshwater fish we go after, I mean they're able to pump water over the gills. So you could let that fish go, and it it's going to be lethargic. But long you see those those gill operculum is moving, water being pumped over it, eventually it should be able to you know revive its own self. But the quicker we can make that happen, pulling the fish through the water, getting more water over its gills, more oxygen, it, it can reduce the the stress from the the fight. So a shark can't do that. I never heard that before. Yeah, I mean that's that's why they constantly swim. Other than there are certain groups of sharks that can do it. Um, the nurse sharks, ones that primarily sit on the bottom, but a lot okay. of the sharks have to constantly swim to get the water over the gills. Okay. So does a shark sleep? Uh, I don't think any fish really really sleep. Okay. Really. <laughs> I, I I never knew that. So that makes sense, I guess. So bass don't sleep. Nah, they'll they'll eat at two o'clock in the morning, three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> yeah. That's that just like blew my mind right there. <laughs> <laughs> they definitely spend a lot of time not eating, especially like during a tournament when you need them. But... Oh, <laughs> or don't. any time I'm on the water. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. So, Sean, you had a couple things you were wanting to ask. Yeah. I, um, just some things that I had heard. Um, like, I had heard the term thermocline, and I always, I, I knew it somewhere, somewhere related to a level of in the water where fish either couldn't be above it at a certain time or below it. I couldn't, I wasn't sure. So, I wondered if you could, you know, clear that up at all or, uh, you know, tell us what a thermocline is and then how fish relate to it or if it changes. Yeah. So, thermocline is just, you know, a layer in the water where you see temperature differences um, caused by stratification, like hot summertime events where you're not getting a lot of wind during the day. You can get hot water on top, cool water on bottom, vice versa in the wintertime. And fish all, all have their optimal temperature where they like to be. So certain times of year when they're seeking that cold water refuge, like in the summertime, they might be below it. Uh, winter time that might be above it but also important part of the thermocline is dictating where the bait is and um bass always going to be near the baits and certain forward species they they relate to it differently some like being right in the middle of the thermocline just because it's more um diverse in the zooplankton they might have kind of just moving back and forth between the two different layers um, but it can it definitely dictates where fish are at certain times of the year, even, even throughout the day. Okay. And so, is, it, is it that they can't survive above or below it, or they just prefer not to be above or below it? Um, it, it depends on how extreme it is. Um, usually, usually it's a preference, but certain times of the year and certain species, if it were a spotted sea trout, for example, that can't, they really don't do well in 10 degrees Celsius water or lower than that. Um, they got to have that warm water. They, they're they definitely not going to leave it. And other certain species like that are cold tolerant, cold intolerant, or hot intolerant. And I guess I think I remember reading that sometimes when you hear about those massive fish kills, it has to do with that thermocline changing quicker than the fish can move or, you know, that kind of thing. 
And so some of those, the thermocline and then the fall turnover, just nutrients, excess nutrients getting in the water and taking out the oxygen. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So is is that what caused, like I've heard of like people with personal ponds, you know, have them turn over. Is that what causes that? Yeah, just the differences in the, the temperature and it just kind of uplifts stuff off the bottom. Um, kind of like El Nino years where warm water just it brings stuff with it whenever it rises so yeah that, that that's what's happening there the nutrients get in the water nutrients with that comes bacteria consuming the nutrients and taking up the oxygen producing co2 yeah all right so just to rewind a little bit you were talking about you know fish staying kind of with the bait now if the bait is kind of in like an uncomfortable temperature like not where the bass particularly want to be will they still follow them to that area as long as it's like you know manageable you know i know you said you know it can be deadly in certain situations but yeah i mean that at first um, the first priority is for them to live so if it's if it's something to where you know they got to stay at that layer to survive they're not gonna you know food's the last thing on their mind and if it was something like a cold intolerant species trying to be in warm water it's not going to go into quarter water where it's going to have a lower metabolism and not want to feed anyway as as much so um yeah the first thing is you know just to survive and you know it might be tons of bait up 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 top but they might need to be below just to be in the optimal range for them that's interesting I think I just heard that last week that fish's first instinct is to survive and secondary is to eat. So the survival always comes first for the most part. You know, yeah. I've all seen, we've all seen fish do dumb things and trying to eat, but uh, yeah, that definitely makes sense. Well, that's just interesting to me because you hear a lot of people talking about, you know, if you can find the, find like the bait fish, then bass are nearby, but you know, based on what you're saying, maybe not necessarily based on that. They they could be staying like maybe deeper in the water column because of that uh, that difference. Yeah, I mean, I've 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 been on been on the water in, in tournaments and situations like that where tons of bait. You'll even see big fish below them, but it's like cold winter time conditions, and they're they're just they're not going to move up there to feed on them unless it warms up and yeah, it, it happens. So I'm guessing that that's mainly going to be in the times of the year where you have the extreme conditions like winter time with extreme cold or summertime with extreme heat. Yeah. That, that's the time that really the thermocline and just fast behavior kind of not being, it, it's, Kind of difficult to predict because those two types of conditions they usually go to deeper water and the more water the harder it is to catch them in general and just their behavior changes because they got a lot more water to operate with and they can be where exactly where they want to do you have any strategies for catching them in those situations or what what do you, what do you usually try to do uh, or you just don't fish during those times <laughs> yeah winter time i that's one of those things i i don't do too much i'd rather drive down to florida and you know at least well you ain't too far are you do what you ain't too far from florida are you yeah i'm i'm about five five hours from the honey hole down there so it's not kind of far but not like crazy far 
three hours to the border, but five hours to the honey hole I was stuck with for a couple of years. And, and where exactly is the honey hole? <laughs> it, 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 it's no secret anymore. It, it's it's Bellsmere, Florida. Everyone knows it now. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if we've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when I heard that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, what's the catch? But after talking to them, it all made sense. There isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com waypoint. That's mintmobile.com waypoint. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com waypoint. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Yeah, it's a fun place. I think if I lived five hours from Florida, I'd be there a lot. <laughs> yeah, when I first started this this position in South Carolina, I told myself, like, I'm going to be down there, like, every other weekend, though. It's, it's okay, but I haven't been down there in a while, and, yeah, it, it's been on fire in that lake. And oh, just around that. Yeah. What are you, What's Sean? Probably, like, 14, 15 hours? <laughs> yeah. It, I know it takes us eight hours to get to North Carolina, so I can't imagine it's... It's probably at least 16, I would guess. I don't know. It, it, it's worth it, but yeah. <laughs> uh, that's not exactly a quick trip for me. But uh, <laughs> but South Carolina isn't too bad, is it? I mean, I don't know, uh, temperature-wise. How mm. cold do you get? I mean, it, it didn't snow last year, but, I mean, 30s. I mean, okay. That's a cold year, yeah. Okay. So it's I guess, yeah, that will slow them down a good bit. But. Yeah, it, like I can't fish comfortable whenever I'm cold. If I start adding layers and I can't feel my fingers, I, I don't fish as efficiently <laughs> as I need to. So uh, I can just avoid that. And yeah, I've, yeah. I put you there. I've 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 continually fished throughout the winter this past year, but I didn't continuously kayak fish because I had to put on more layers and stuff. So my dad's got a boat. So I'd go out on the boat with him, I think, like, January and February. And, you know, that way I can wear my layers. I, it'd be rough trying to paddle in, like, coveralls and all that. Yeah, you just feel, feel bulky and, like, half the time you miss a fish because you really didn't feel it because you couldn't feel your fingers. And, yeah, I, I don't like it. <laughs> so let me ask you this real quick, you know, since, since you – or pretty smart and like fish behavior and all that. There's kind of been some talk about warm weather and cold weather and all that. Do all bass pretty much tend to like the same temperatures or are regions a big play in that? Like, like we're, we talked about, we, uh, we got our buddy Josh Smith from the dark waters uh, kayak fishing podcast he lives up in new york city so we're we're doing a bracket style tournament here at paddle and finn and i had to fish against him and we were talking about you know with it being a little cooler uh you know he had cold weather c conditions 
I had cold weather conditions for me here in Tennessee, but you know, it's like summer conditions for him. So <laughs> I, my theory is, you know, his bass are more used to the cold. So they, they should bite a little easier in cold. My bass here in Tennessee around the Nashville area, you know, they're, they're used to a little bit warmer, warmer air temp, water temp. So whenever it gets a little bit chilly, what they would consider kind of warm water would be kind of cold for us. And that would kind of shut them down. Does that make sense what I'm trying to say? Yeah. It, and it's, you know, a strain difference in bass, like the Southern strain, Florida strain, they do better in warmer water than like cold water versus a normal strain largemouth. Um, yeah, you can look at it, you know, regionally, a Florida fish versus South Carolina fish versus, you know, Virginia versus New York. Those fish are, they're definitely more adapted to being in cold water and that being not really, I'm, I'm going to say a natural, but dealing with overall cold, temp, cooler temperatures, cooler temperatures they're better adapt to uh, versus like a, a southern fish you expose it to 30 degree water for too long or i guess it's going to be frozen at 30 expose <laughs> it to 40 to 50 degree water for too long it's it it's going to be lethargic and it's not going to be itself versus a, a fish in new york it's going to be like, yeah you know this is what i deal with um but in terms of like sudden su- sudden changes is it, it probably affects really affects them equally and to the extent that it's going to irritate them and make them harder to bite just because they're more worried about relieving that pressure off the swim bladder. And we were, I was, that was another one of my questions is, was how does pressure affect the fish? And I had heard that it, it plays a big role with their swim bladder, you know, so um, under high pressure or like good weather or higher pressure, it, uh, it's not as much pressure on their swim bladder, so they can they're more comfortable. Whereas low pressure puts a lot of pressure on their swim bladder. Is that kind of how it goes, or is it backwards from that? It's just a matter of how they regulate it and are able to inflate it. Like it's it's difficult in those you know high pressure pressure. Yeah, it's, it's difficult in those lower pressure conditions. Um, difficult to inflate it and kind of deflate it on command so to just kind of deal with that, that change they just go somewhere where there's less need to do it and and usually that's somewhere in the middle of the water column just kind of finding that equilibrium spot so what the swim bladder normally functions just to keep them at a certain level or or, or depth and yeah. then um, when it's working good, they don't have to expend a lot of energy to to stay there. But when when it's not working good due to pressure, they have to they they have trouble staying in one spot. Or yeah, or that, the, that's pretty much it. Like normal conditions, if they want to be towards the bottom, they can deflate it and sink, or they can inflate it and kind of rise up if they need to. You start putting the pressure changes on it, where it's kind of like oh, it's, it's harder to go down or it's harder to come up. It's they could just they kind of meet in the middle, I guess. Makes sense. And then because they're having to, you know, 
fight that, then that's why they aren't really in the mood to eat because they're more just not comfortable and having to work to stay where they want to be. Yeah. yeah. All right, now I don't so feel so bad when I can't catch fish when the pressure's dry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not a fan of suspended fish. So They're definitely catch. tough to catch. And, uh, man, whenever I go out and see them on my finder and they're right in the middle, I'm like, Ugh. Here we go. So I don't know if I've ever even caught a suspended fish. You know, I, I the only technique I can really come to mind with with a suspended fish is like a crankbait or you know, maybe a swim bait rigged for uh for that, but yeah, at crankbaits I have no luck with. I'm terrible crankbait fisherman. So <laughs> Those fish ain't for me either. <laughs> I've heard of like jerk baits, suspending jerk baits. If you can drop them down and have them suspend in front of them enough, then and potentially a drop shot, depending where they're suspending, if you can get your leader length right. Um, I so, it, that. but uh, but again, I don't have any luck doing it either. So, <laughs> yeah, I've, I've tried all those things, and yeah, it's there's, there's something else involved, and I haven't figured that out. Yeah. But I definitely don't think uh, the three of us are the only ones who struggle with that because uh, I've heard that regular time, many, many times that suspending fish are the hardest to catch. So. Hey, I've heard that from high-level anglers as well. So I, I don't think that they're a fan favorite at all. <laughs> um, one of my other questions was why I, you always hear that it's best or it's good to fish around the full moon, like the, the two days leading up to the two or three days leading up to the full moon and the two or three days after. And, uh, I know, uh, so I figured I'd ask you about that too. If you know why that happened, why that's better. Yeah, part of that is it just opens up a, a bigger feeding window for the fish. They can feed throughout the night and they just get more active all in all, just knowing that moon's coming, especially if it's certain times of the year, like, when spawning temperatures are approaching, they just, in general, will get more active because everything in their body is going right, and they know they need to, you know, stock up on food to get, you know, that energy to, you know, those babies, those eggs, and all that. So is that a visual thing, or is that they just know, I don't know, based on how long it's been since the last one that it's coming again, or, you know, it, like it, if it's cloudy, are they going to know that it's a full moon? Yeah, they'll, they 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 still feel it for sure. It's you know that gravity's changing a little bit, and we might not necessarily feel it, but you know they feel it. All wild animals are keyed in on it. They they know full moon certain time of year when the photo periods are changing, temperatures are changing. That that just changes their behavior. Interesting. Huh. So is it true? You know, I've heard people talk about the full moon and like. <clears throat> three days before and three days after something like that, you know, the crawfish hatch. So throw like a crawl imi imitation. Is that true? Or is that just kind of like a folk tale or. I mean, specifically for crawfish, I'm not sure of, but like certain types of insects, I mean, they would definitely might hatch on different, different moon phase. Um, other fish species spawn on different moons and, you know, predators know that. So, um, it, it, 
predator fish bass and key on uh, key in on the moon if it, even if it's not directly related to you know bass themselves it might be related to a food or predator and things like that um one question when we were talking about spawn and, and ryan was asking about the difference between a new york fish and a and a florida fish uh, it made me wonder like so you know i, I know you hear certain temperatures uh for spawn is that going to be different by the strain like whether it's a florida fish or a, a new york fish like you always hear 55 60 degrees you know when it started hitting those water temperatures you know it's coming is that generally the truth for most strains or it depends as as far as i know i mean there could be like a, a lower temperature for like the northern strains and the warmer fish kind of you know it's a little bit higher um, but in general you know that 60 degree mark fish start getting active start making beds I, I think that's true no matter where you really go so 60 degrees is really the the kind of key temperature you want to look for yeah, 60 degrees anytime in March. That's that's what I start looking for around here. Okay. Yeah, we don't see 60 until we just started seeing it here in Pennsylvania. So, um, and give or take a couple of cold nights, and it goes right back down below it again. So, how does that work? Like, so will that shut it off until it warms back up again, or once they start, then they kind of keep going? I mean, they'll, they, they, they stay active because ultimately it's, it's not just a, the temperature saying, hey, it's time to spawn. It's, it's photo period because that's, you know, temperature is dynamic. It might be high or low one day versus the photo period. It's, I mean, it, it's set like we're getting longer and longer days, longer light. And the fish know that. So that kind of, you know, it might drop in temperature, but that photo period told them, hey, I'm going to be spawning soon, so I'm just going to stay in this general area. I might not go guard the nest like I, I should 24-7, but they're going to stick around, stay somewhat shallow, even if the temperature drops like that. Okay, that makes sense. I was just going to ask what photo period it was, but you're just saying when the days get longer, and that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, photo and spawning for all fish, it's photo period is kind of that number one thing that really sets the mood sets their you know gonads to where it needs to be but then temperature is kind of that last little thing to say hey it, it's time the the zooplankton's here the food's going to be here for the babies we need to do something and then after the spawn when uh it sh they kind of shut down for a little bit is that just recovery or from all the energy it took for you know the whole spawn period is that kind of why they're sometimes harder to catch then yeah, it's, I mean, they, they go in that, that feeding mode after, once they're done, um, but it, it, it is, you know, spawning stressor on them. There, there's going to be some, some lag, okay. especially if they were kind of beat up on or in a stressful event. They decided to nest under like an eagle, uh, eagle, eagle nesting in a tree or something like that. And, or, you know, FLW tournament was there and they just plucking them off, trying to plug them off. How's, what's your thought on that on bed fishing is that uh harmful or okay as long as you put them right back or it's a good question i mean it, it really comes down to the fishery some fisheries do well even you know high high bed fishing pressure somewhere like gunnersville it it seems to do well even when they hold tournaments during bedding season santi cooper is one of them that does well it, it's kind of a kind of fishery specific in just how much pressure they get 
Um, but, yeah, I mean, it is stressful taking a fish off the bed, pulling it back to the weigh-in site, and just releasing it back. If it's a female, I mean, it's more likely that fish might not spawn. Those eggs are regressed, and just that fish has to wait till next year. You take the male away from the nest, of course, you know, predators come in there get eggs if they're there. Um, it, it, it It's stressful. But to really determine if it's detrimental to the specific fishery, it just kind of varies depending on the body of the water. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I had seen some videos uh, about taking the males away and how quickly the predators move in. It, it was kind of amazing. You know, they're saying, you know, matter of even minutes to even, you know, under a minute, the predators will move in. If Once they know that uh, male is gone, it's crazy. It, it doesn't take long, and it, you know, thinking about it, it's going to be interesting to see what happens with, like, different fisheries and how well they do next year and years to come, because with this whole pandemic shutdown and less people in the water in, in some states, it's, those, those fish might have kind of a, a relief, and, you know, they might have a booming, you know, two and three or second, third year class fish down the road, and it, it'd be interesting to see how the, the fish handle that. Well, I'll have the opposite of that here because ever since everything's kind of shut down, uh, the boat ramp that I've went been going to more regularly, you get there, you cannot find a parking spot. Like, you got to park in the grass somewhere. <laughs> it, it's been crazy how many people were out there fishing. Yeah. It, we had a... We had a a one month shutdown where no public ramps were available, but of course kayaker you can throw off throw off the side of the road. So Yeah. See we we haven't shut down fishing at all. Uh it when I said shut down I'm talking about like businesses. We we did shut down, you know, non essential businesses. So uh you know a lot of people were off work and and so they're going fishing because they never shut down any ramps or anything. I, I think there were a couple ramps around dams that were shut down. I'm not sure the reason of that, but for the most part, everything was still open fishing-wise. Yeah. I wish that was the case here, but <laughs> we'll see how the fish do. I think they'll do yeah. a lot better next year down the road. It's interesting. Um, I, last year, I live uh, about a half... Uh, 15 minutes from the Susquehanna, which is supposedly world-class smallmouth fishing. And, you know, there's definitely been times when it was like that. But last year, for whatever reason, smallmouth, at least in my area, were really, really hard to find. And um, I was, I've was i read a few articles about it. And one of the things they were saying is that right during the spawn last year, we had uh, very high water flow, like a couple of heavy rains, you know, and a period of a lot much higher, faster flow. And they're saying that that might have really messed up the spawn for that year, you know. Um, and I, I, I believe something happened because it just, it was really tough last year, right in my area for smallmouth. Um, yeah. I mean, 
I, I think I, now, not that I'm a super smallmouth fisherman, but, um, I was out, I want to say 20, 30 hours, uh, right on the prime season and I caught two fish. So I, I could catch catfish all day long if I wanted to, but smallmouth, I just couldn't find. So yeah, they, I'm, I'm pretty sure there's some science, scientific papers out there. Where they looked at that kind of similar scenario for a uh, new river fish, um, Virginia, West Virginia, and at certain times of year, certain, certain high flood events, high water events, pushes them back poor year classes of fish. Yeah. And we just had another yeah, two weeks of high water here. So I'm hoping that it didn't screw it up again for this year, but you know, hopefully uh, it wasn't, it wasn't as bad as it was last year this time. So hopefully it's, it'll be okay. <laughs> yeah. A couple good years. It'll rebound. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's one place I've, I've been wanting to fish is the Susky. I haven't done that one yet. So I've heard there's still places just, I just have to drive to them that, that are still fine. Um, I just haven't done it yet. So, um, I gotta get some people to show me, show me where to go. But, uh, but yeah, but but I've already caught more than I caught all of last year in the first, you know, two months that I've been out on the river this year. So I, I think hopefully this year will be a better year for sure. So nice. Well, dude, you're going to kill it. You're going to be like me last year. Once I got on the podcast, I like doubled how many bass <laughs> I had caught in the past five years total. Well, I mean, already this year, I, I've caught I probably close to as many as, well, I wouldn't say as last year, but it, it's definitely, I my number is higher this year already so than I was at this point last year. So. Right on. So, yeah, I'm out of questions for Jason. You got anything else? I think that's all I could think of, um, but yeah, I appreciate uh, you coming on, man. Yeah, no problem. And yeah. for anyone out there listening, I would say... You know, catch, photo, release. The main thing to remember is fish live in water. Try to keep them in the water as long as possible. Be prepared whenever you're ready to take that photo, whether it's, a, you know, just a, a selfie shot with a big fish or, you know, an actual tournament photo. You know, have that identifier out. Have your camera ready. Have the board ready. Get the fish out of the water, on the board, take the picture, back in the water. And, yeah, I know uh, one, one thing I was going to ask you, um, I know with trout fishing, they, uh, I've heard a couple of people say, always wet your hands before you touch the fish. Is that as big a deal with, with bass or is that, uh, it, it, it's, it's not, but I always try to do it anyways, kind of a general practice because like fishing, I just usually go after a lot of different things and it's kind of a habit just to always wet my hands. It, it, it'll help, but not necessarily like going to be super detrimental if you forget for whatever reason but it, it's definitely helpful wet your hands wet the board anything that fish his body is going to touch if it's wet you know it's better preserve the slime coat yeah okay and to go off what you were saying before sean asked that question um you know setting up the board getting your phone ready with the camera on and everything not only is that going to be better for the fish with it being out of the water for less time but that's going to make it easier for you to get that photo and with with less chance of that fish like jumping off you know the longer it's out of the water on the board the more chance you got of it trying to jump off flop off so it benefits you and the fish to do that so yeah be smart about it guys and practice it. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's definitely, even if you're out fun fishing, sometimes it's good just to practice the CPR thing, putting it on the board, getting a quick picture, just so you, it, it's going to speed up the time when you actually do have to do it. Um, the more you do it, the faster you're going to get at it. Yep. So was there anything we didn't ask about or we didn't cover that you feel like we should touch on before we close this off? As far as like, I mean, I know we started off with, you know, uh with like i guess healthy procedures for handling fish and we kind of got into fish behavior but as far as like handling fish was there anything that we didn't cover that you feel like we should touch on no i mean i think like just kind of a general 101 you know that's pretty good pretty good synopsis of it all right well appreciate you coming on here and talking to us about this I, i know this is this is a, it, it's something that's talked about, but it's not, if you know what I mean. Like, you know, it, I mean, I, I've seen a lot of photos where I just kind of go, uh, kind of cringe, kind of, yeah. kind of like I did at that fish grip photo. And, 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 you know, I was kind of upset about, about that photo when I saw it, but then it's like, okay, maybe it's just, you know, misinformation or like, don't have that education to know that that's hurting the fish and 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 that's what this segment of the podcast is all about is education and you know it's mainly about you know trying to figure out how to catch the fish but we we got to maintain the fish too if if we expect to continue to catch them absolutely everything i mean we're pretty much everyone's a resource manager in the way they handle fish and you know harvest and whatnot and we take care of it. It's going to always be there. So, yeah. I don't. Well, do you want to, uh, you got any like social media or sponsors you want to shout out real quick? Um, I, I can be followed on a uh, Jaybro kayak fishing, Instagram, um, webpage, Jason Broach fishing, Facebook page, Jaybro or Jason Broach fishing. I think also, um, sponsors, there's a pretty, pretty good list, but, um, been with Hobie a while, Ramp Mounts, uh, Sea Deck, yeah, Lawrence, Ego Fishing Nets, you know, talking about the nets, the rubberized nets, they make a lot of different ones for kayak anglers, and they're awesome. Um, a lot of different other companies, um, Pure Fishing, uh, Calicoast Fishing, Biolina Power, uh, Catch USA, um, and a couple others. Not can't remember off the top of my head. They're, they're <laughs> If, that's a pretty good list <laughs> but if um you know i use their products there's a reason for it it's not just for show it, it helps me be a better angler for you know all the sponsors i do have so awesome right on. but yeah thank you thank you guys for having me on and i hope hope what i said helped a little bit and helps people out yeah. definitely some good information for sure like some a lot of things i didn't know like fish sleeping who knew (laughs) or not sleeping i i don't think i'd ever really thought about it to be honest so yes all right all right guys well uh once again thanks for tuning into the paddle and fin um network specifically the bass fish for noob segment um, as always, we're here to bring you the techniques, the tricks, and the tips to help you rip some more lips. Thanks, guys, and have a good evening.
Later. Thanks for tuning in to another killer episode on Paddle and Finn. Don't forget to go check out our website at Paddle, the letter N, and Finn.com. Don't forget to check out the YouTube channel at Paddle and Finn. If you got a question, comment, want to hear from a future guest on a future episode, feel free to email us at Paddle, the letter N, and Finn at gmail.com. Don't forget to follow us on social media at Paddle and Finn on Facebook and Instagram. Shout out to our show supporters, Angler, the Angler Button, and app just makes for a better time on the water and creates a virtual logbook for every fishing outing out on the water. Shout out to Rocktown Adventures, located in Northern Illinois for all your kayaking, camping, and hiking needs. TRC Covers, protect your investment. Catch Products, shout out to Catch Products. Go to catchproducts.com and put the Paddle in Fin logo directly on your catch board. Shout out to Jigmasters Jigs. When in doubt, get the jig out. Go to jigmasters.com, use promo code PNF20, and save 20% on all your jig and tackle needs.